0: more importantly as I was educating so I was a professor for 17 years, and I just recognized some things that were going on in the classroom that that uh, weren't right and you could see the decisions being made by executives who've gone through the same MBA business ethics courses right so you realize you know there's something that's not sticking in these courses. How can we change that? How can we change this conversation to be different?
1: Hey, it's David and you're listening to leadership without losing your soul. Your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show today. Thanks again for making us one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. Just, uh, I think you heard this last episode, we just found out we're one of the top 10 podcasts listened to of all podcasts, any kind, leadership or otherwise. And that's due to you. That's due to you sharing, listening. And so just want to thank you for your investment in your own human-centered leadership and that investment that you're making in others. And we have a guest today who is uh, going to be a fantastic guide, sage for us on that journey. His name is Dr. Christopher Gilbert, and he's the author of a book called The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World One Choice at a Time. And please don't, turn off the podcast yet when you hear ethics. What? Because I am telling you, this is a fantastic book. Chris is going to be a great guest, and uh, and you're going to love some of the stories he has to tell. Chris, I'm still angry about some of the stories I read. Like they, <laughs> they affected me that much, so we're going to talk about that. But let me tell you a little bit more about Chris. Uh, th- this book is as useful in the boardroom as the family room. It's insightful. I mentioned the stories. It's got powerful models that are going to help you sharpen your ethical lens and empower you to examine Uh, your standards and values, and apply those transformational concepts to your life. And most importantly, um, Dr. Gilbert here, he's going to give you the tools individually and collectively to achieve what he calls moral progress and bring better ethics into your organization, your family, communities, and ultimately the world, which is what that human centered leadership is all about. So Chris, thank you for being a guest with us today on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul.
0: Well, thank you, David. It's a real privilege.
1: Uh, I'm excited to get into this. And like I said, uh, you've got some, some, I mean, I don't want to call them great stories because some of them stink, honestly, but they're, they're captivating and they really bring this topic alive in a way that, I mean, I've studied a lot of ethics. I have not seen anybody do it the way you're doing it. And I love that. So I know you're doing that for a reason.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, the first story in the book is about the small business that we started in the mid 80s. And it was a real interesting idea, which, by the way, during the last number of COVID years would have been a fantastic and big money making business because it was a a home food delivery business. And to make a long story short, uh, we were dealing with large food service companies across the U.S. to try and get expansion capital and uh, some of them came into the organization they signed all the non-compete and keep it secret clauses um and then they left uh, after being with us a month and uh, wrote us a letter a month later and said no thanks we're not going to do this and then six weeks later they discovered that they were opening an identical operation in eden prairie minnesota um and uh, that they had just really been there to take all the secrets up so it had uh, our bands our transportation system our uh menu our marketing and uh, of course it's a big billions and billions of dollar company so we couldn't take them on legally we were just a small uh, business at that point in time and i and, and i had to lay off 35 employees that had been with us for three years and that's probably one of the hardest days of my life and that's i think not at the time i thought this is about ethics but as i was thinking about later i said you know we have to figure out how to make better choices individually, in the business world, in the medical world. And something's not gaining traction in our education, either as consultants or, or in the classroom. So how do we change that conversation?
1: You know, and what, uh, what comes to me, I, I typically start off, Chris, asking every guest about uh, one of their earliest memories of themselves as a leader. And I didn't do that here with you because you've got this transformational story moment that is your earliest kind of like origin story of where this passion for ethics came from and you know that so i want to walk through and actually tease out some bits of that story a little bit because so there's the first obvious factor is that that you were screwed over i mean you were treated very poorly unethically you you had your idea ripped off by one of the goliath folks out there who knew that you didn't have the wherewithal to, to fight them or you know in court or anything like that and that so they could get away with it scot-free they had the power and i I, that kind of that kind of injustice is one of my (laughs) it's one of my buttons oh i don't like that it still fires me up and i've read that story now in your book a couple of times as you know over the the course of getting ready for this uh, interview (laughs) i'm still upset about it you don't seem upset about it i'm (laughs) upset about it
0: Well, you know, uh, David, it it set me on this path, which in the end, I think, turned out to be a much more privileged place to try and help change the world. And food service was great, and we were doing a lot more than food service. But I think this idea of having a better conversation about the way that we make right choices and the ways that we think about including in those choices, everyone who could be affected, that's really where we're missing the beat now. And so uh, part of the reason that I got into what I got and I got my PhD in leadership ethics was because I was in the classroom. I was a professor for about 16 years. As I was in the undergraduate and graduate classrooms, my students would have what I've come to call this ethics out of body experience. Whereas we were studying in case studies, those leaders out there that were making horrendous mistakes, costing millions or billions of dollars and, and uh, losing the companies, the employees, you know, more than money most of the time, um, that they themselves, my students in the classroom and then later on consulting in the boardrooms um, were sort of going, well, that's incredible. I myself would never make that kind of a decision. I could never make that kind of a decision. All while we're cutting people off on the freeway every day, uh, fudging on our taxes, uh, secondhand smoking, uh, all the things that we don't put on an ethics radar screen, but rationalize later is just fine. We can all come up with ways to feel just fine about cutting someone off on the freeway. I was angry here. Watch me do this. Look, I got to be faster than you. I'm more important to get somewhere. Any number of ways we go, yeah, that's just fine. And we don't think at the time, here, watch me be unethical. I'm going to cut someone off. On the freeway, we kind of do exactly what the big profile leaders that make billion dollar ethics mistakes do. And that's literally rationalize whatever the choice is based on who they're most concerned about. Because, face it, no executive walks into a boardroom and says, you know, all those in favor of screwing the consumer, that's a technical term, screwing the consumer and making a lot of money and getting away with it, please raise your hand. You know, it it just doesn't happen that way. They make the choices, albeit maybe bigger, worse ones, um, but they make the unethical choices and then rationalize that whatever they're doing is just fine. So I needed a way to connect people to the choice making they were doing.
1: And the reason that honestly that I invited you on the show is because you're not just talking about this. You're not just talking about the principle behind it. Part of that story. So the big player steals your idea. Now, what do you do? Well, you mentioned you had to lay people off, but there's something that happened in between that I think is really important for our listeners to understand, which is you had people interested in potentially investing in your business. And one of the questions that they ask is, to the best of your knowledge, does anyone else have this idea? I'm paraphrasing, but along those lines, do I have that right?
0: You absolutely have that right. In fact, we were sitting down with two organizations at the same time. And uh, I've already told you about the one organization. And the other one, once they learned that this large food service, Fortune 500 food service company, was going to be doing this, or in fact was doing it, they just simply walked away from the negotiating table, left us with about a $100,000 legal bill as we were doing the negotiating. And they said, you know, if they're first in in the market share, we're never going to catch up. So we'll wait to see what happens. And of course, they didn't really, they just walked away from the table. And that's when Our venture capital group said, look, we're not here to be in the food service business. We're here to make money. Um, And that's not happening in the way that we want it to because we want to be in cities across the U.S. We thought we'd get bought out. And so they walked away as well. So there were actually a whole bunch of ethical choices made in that cascade of events that happened. Um, And one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that whatever we did, it was the right thing to do. You know, my book starts off with the comment, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. So that was foremost in our minds as we were thinking about, well, okay, so how do we let these people go? How do we ensure that they've got a a safety net of some kind to fall into? They've been with us for three years, and and they all expected a piece of the company as we did in the buyout and all. So there were a lot of hopes dashed. And like I said, it just led me to think, we've got to talk about this in a different way. And that's the conversation I wanted to start in my consultation, in my teaching, and, and with the book
1: and it's the part that that made me sit up and take notice of you got you have that story because the of the many ethical questions that you just brought up one of them was okay do we disclose the fact that yeah we've been ripped off and these other people have the idea to the group that was interested in investing in you because if they had you could have made a lot of money and all of your team could have made a lot of money potentially
0: yeah and of course it's all right to make money it's it's ethical to make money i always tell this to organizations in particular because somehow they think that Also, making money is not a good thing. It's not. Making money is a great thing. The questions you have to ask are, how do we make it and what do we do with it, right? So fortunately, without really understanding the ethics of it, I think those questions were in our mind too. Well, yeah, we could probably get away with this for six months. And by that time, this other company is going to be so heavily invested, they can't simply just back out. They probably could. They're big enough, but they can't back out. So they'll get this thing on its feet and running, and then they'll maybe discover what happened. Um, and I think all of us felt like that's not the right way. If if we've been uh, basically screwed over by somebody else, it's not a good for us to say, "Well, look, they made a profit that way. Let's us make a profit going after these guys that can afford it." Because there we are, rationalizing something that's the wrong thing to do and feeling just fine about it, which we didn't. So we didn't do it. And you live in the talk, and I think that's you know part of
1: the message that comes through uh, your your book repeatedly is that ethics are not something you say, it's something you do, and that's the the living it out. And And so you have, in those instances that you're describing there, done that. So you've got some credibility, but this sets you on a path where you then went and researched the heck out of ethics, ethical decision-making, and why it's not sticking, and how do we get there?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not a research guy, so it was sort of like swimming upstream to Try and get my Ph.D., which I'd never really planned on doing. I had my bachelor's in geology, actually, and then an MBA, which is what got me into the kind of work that I was doing, uh, working on the marketing plan for this business, et cetera. And um, then when I got done with that, and I started visiting different places around the world, and, and was asked to talk about ethics or moral development or business ethics, you know, whatever the group was, I realized that I sort of felt like, you know, if I if I want to be the sheriff. I got to wear a sheriff's badge and get the boots and get the guns and the holster and the hat. Um, So that was the PhD was just to say, you know, it's not just my ideas that we're talking about. These are ideas that have been validated through the research, the research that you're talking about. And One of the major things that came out of my research, and maybe this is where you were headed, um, is that uh, I discovered that people who've gotten formal training in ethics, whether it's in the classroom or the boardroom, actually make lower level moral choices than the people who've not gotten formal training in the classroom or the boardroom and ethics. So say that again, those that are trained are actually making lower level moral choices than those that haven't been trained.
1: And when you say lower level, you mean like less moral?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think uh, you'll see, we'll probably wind up talking about it where we're on this ladder and, and the lowest level of the ladder is you're concerned about yourself when you're making the choices. And I call that it's about me. So that's really the lowest level when we're making an ethical choice is I'm standing there really only concerned about myself. Do I get a reward in making this choice or do I get punished um, if I do this? Or how can I avoid that punishment? It's all about me. So at any rate, uh, as, as I was thinking about that, because it was a really uh, a, a real paradigm shift to think about. Our training was actually making people make worse choices ethically. Um, it turned out that really what we wound up doing in our training, whether we're consultants or we're educators, is giving people a whole bunch of frameworks that we treat as equal, and then demonstrating the choices that come out of those different frameworks. And I won't bore you to death, but consequentialism. So what are the consequences of my choice? And they determine if it's ethical. Relativism, oh, it's relative, meaning if you know this over here and you make one choice, or you know this other thing in the opposite over here and make it ethical. Because people were walking out of these educational settings and uh, uh, basically making a decision and then choosing a framework that made it ethical. Now, I don't say we do this consciously. I don't go out there and go, oh, that's relativism. And so I was a relativist today, and that was just fine. I'm just saying unconsciously, we sort of are able to find these frameworks that make what we're doing just fine. And that's not what we want. What we want at a minimum is that they choose a way to look at their ethical decisions, and they use that every time. And it helps them decide, is this good or is this bad, not every choice is good under one of those different rubrics, rubrics that, you know, that I've been taught about. So that's the conversation I wanted to change.
1: I can see that. I, and as I think back to my own, uh, you know, and primarily I'd say university education, although some in, even in high school, but, uh, thinking about ethics and, and how it was taught so often you dive into the really tough, you know, gray areas and, you know, we're doing trolley dilemmas and, You know, where there's maybe not a great answer necessarily as you work through everything. And and if that's the entire (laughs) study, kind of you lose your framework, don't you?
0: Yeah, exactly. I think it gets muddled. And like you said, even your phrasing, um, and, and people say this, I say this sometimes still, um, that ethics are gray. And using that phrase, ethics are gray, it's like sort of it's like using the phrase, I'm sort of pregnant. Um, or I sort of voted, or I'm sort of alive. When of course you are or you aren't, you did or you didn't, you're going to or you're not going to, there's no middle ground about it. And so ethics are there to tell us what's right from what's wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. There are situations which are so foggy uh, or the penalty for making the most ethical choice so high that it's very difficult to see the choice that we should make. But that's our perception. The ethics are still there, right and wrong, to tell us that was a good thing to do, that was a bad thing to do. And sometimes it's a matter of, like I'm trying to do now, education sort of teach you that ethics isn't the purview of the great philosophers and the great religious leaders and the great academics, um, which by the way, I would not count myself in, but um, that it's really there for us to be able to utilize. And uh, that makes it seem a lot easier when we're making choices and sort of standing back and saying, it was so foggy, this is the choice I made.
1: All right, we're talking with Dr. Christopher Gilbert, the author of The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World One Choice at a Time. And so we've been talking, Chris, about uh, how you got on this journey and some of what, what you learned, were learning and what motivated you. Uh, you call the book The Noble Edge, and you position it in terms of several edges that we're familiar with there's the competitive edge the cutting edge the leading edge and talk about the noble edge can you help us understand from your perspective the positioning of where the noble edge falls in this continuum of edges and why it's important now
0: yeah great question um i think we all know those terms most of us i'm sure the cutting edge the leading edge those are those rarefied spaces in business or 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 sports or, or life where different ways of thinking advance us to a new position which was better than the old position. And the noble edge is an advance in our character. Um, It's a place where our words and our deeds agree more and more and more, right? Um, So if you think about it, the greatest ethical gaps are where people's words don't agree with their actions. And so the noble edge is that place where the words, our words and our deeds actually do begin to agree, and that creates a a place of honesty and integrity that that begins to underscore all of our choices, and aren't we going to be in a better world if we can rely on each other 100% all of the time than where we are now? So it's not only good for us individually, but the book is also there to talk about how it does change the community, the business, the organization, our friends, whatever it is around us that ripples out from us. Uh, our, our honesty and integrity begins to really ripple out to others. Um, and it makes a difference not only to the quality of our lives, but to the quality of others' lives as well.
1: And advancing everyone's quality of life together. And going back to the challenge that you mentioned a little while ago, which I, I just thought that was so important, is that almost no one goes into a decision consciously saying, I'm going to make an unethical choice here. Maybe they might, frame it that way afterwards or later on upon reflection. But in the moment, most of us are not trying to make an unethical choice and yet it consistently happens. I'm, I'm thinking of organizations I've worked, uh, worked in or with, or seen, uh, been in proximity to, and I have seen that happen so many times. Uh, I've seen it, um, you know, even in my own leadership where I, upon reflection, like, wow, that was not, I would not do that again. That was not my best self. Uh, once I've looked at it, but in the moment, I wasn't trying to be unethical. What do we do with that? If that's a reality, and that's how a lot of this stuff ends up happening, this like slow erosion or rationalizing or what have you, you've got a system to help us think through these and make some better
0: decisions. Yeah, and again, I think that was really important to try and offer, not just uh, dictate stories and show you where people had done wrong and how it affected me or affected others, but yeah, so your question is exactly on the money. How can we change the way that we think? Um, So maybe one way to do it, as I was alluding to earlier, is we get caught up in this idea that somehow ethics can be beyond us, that it's the great thinkers that need to sit down and ponder the problem and then come up with some more moral choice than we could make, when in fact... Um, that's really not the case at all. Ethics are there for us to be able to try and ponder or to look at. And I think the book offers the idea, uh, the metaphor that it's much better um, rather than thinking of ethics as sins or laws or whatever guidelines or policies and procedures, whatever it is we're going to break and we're not happy with. It's a lot easier and I think a lot more effective for us to think of them like the guardrails on the side of a bridge. You can ask yourself, how fast would you cross a bridge, especially a high one over the water or something, or up in the mountains, um, if there were no guardrails on the side, right? You had this open open to either side kind of thing. Well, I don't know about you, and we've got a very big bridge here, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which was Galloping Gertie back in the 30s that <laughs> fell apart and had to be built again. Um, but anyway, it's 200 feet over the water. and It's about a mile long, right? And I think to myself, well, what would I do if there were no guardrails there? We'd just open And I'd go, well, you know, maybe on a very calm day, I might drive across going slowly. I don't think I'd do 60, because who knows what other people are gonna do. Um, But especially if it's a windy day or rainy day, I'm gonna get out of the car on one side, sort of go crawling across the bridge on my hands and knees to the other side where I've got my other car, get into that car and use it, right? And you think, well, those guardrails are really a privilege. Um, There's nothing iffy or philosophical or moving about the guardrails. That's why we can go as fast Um, And as far as we want to be able to go with the others that are around us on this, no pun intended, road to life. And so um, I wanted to get people to begin thinking of ethics, not as some uh, distant point that could in fact be very iffy and movable, but as something like the guardrails that are always there and actually protect us on our journey. And they're not seen as a a sin or some kind of criminal act. They're seen as a privilege. Thank goodness those guardrails are there because they really help us to do our best and to move along in our lives as best we can. So that was really the first place to start. And then the second was to say, okay, so how can we come up with a framework that sort of gets us out of this idea and makes the ethics seem a little bit more black and white? And that leads us to this moral ladder that the book talks about. It's more like a step stool, but there's three steps on this ladder. And I alluded to this beginning earlier um, I don't want to diatribe on and on here, but that first step you, you're considering an ethical choice and your real concern is about you. So it's about you. What can I do here that's going to get me a reward or gain me a reward? And I'll give you a personal example or an example that other people might really understand. Um, think about if you're speeding down the road and there's a policeman that catches you on his or her radar and pulls you over and they walk up to the car and they say, do you know how fast you were going? Well the truth right now isn't gonna serve me at all. So what I'm gonna do is figure out some way to say no without saying no, like, oh, but was I speeding officer? Or, oh, I think I was doing just a couple miles an hour above the speed limit, even though I was doing 80 and a 60. Um, and even if I got kids in the car, I'm not thinking about what are they listening to here? Cause they know I was, going, you know, daddy was going fast. Um, I'm gonna come up with some way where I can avoid the ticket and lying in that case is all right for me to do. So I justify it very easily. Because in this case, the ethics are about me, not about the others on the road that were in fact perhaps endangered by the speed that I was doing and that's why the law was there. And by the way, if I don't like the law, I can work on getting the law changed. Maybe one person can't do that, but I've got an obligation not to speed on the road to break the law, because that's what I need to do, but to work on behalf of myself and probably a lot of others to say, you know, that stretch of the highway We could be going faster. So let's talk about changing, you know, say this to the officer, but let's talk about changing or how we can change the law, right? So that begins to expand this way of thinking about the choices that you're making and moving from the first step, it's about me, up to the next two steps that are there, right? We're beginning to open up the doors to think about others in our choices. Well, so let's let's
1: walk through that a little bit because one of the questions whenever I have this conversation with leaders and I, I find that most leaders are like, yeah I, I want to be ethical or they see themselves that way and maybe we can anchor into the framework a little bit more but but there is a feeling that's out there and I know that you have to have encountered this that at some level people who choose a higher rung on the ladder are making a sucker's bet because they're going to lose and I put lose in quotes the way that for instance, you lost when the company stole your idea and they made an unethical decision. They benefited from it, although not sufficiently and early enough. And if, like you said, if they had it during the pandemic, maybe better. But, uh, but that in an ethical world where people are acting ethically, that and some choose not to, and we see these examples all the time, and it's something that I know people wrestle with in that sense that. Well, everybody's doing it, even though it's not everybody. It's, you know, and not that that's how we're going to make our ethical choices. But I know that that's something people wrestle with. And so I'd love to get your perspective on that as we talk about these higher rungs.
0: Yeah, at the 35,000 foot level, I would sort of give the sages, and not me, but the sages the sayings about this that I've read that if we knew what the end of our journey was at the beginning, we'd make a completely different set of choices because we'd be focusing on what that ending was rather than what we'd see at the beginning, right? So really for business, this is long-term versus short-term thinking. And there's a great deal of reward for businesses from the stockholders on down to make uh, short-term decisions that gain a lot of money right now because I want my return right now. And this question I often get is, well, look, we can put all these things in place, this business conduct stuff, and add telephone, 800 telephone numbers for people to report and uh, get systems or processes where people can talk about this and really work on these questions before they make a bad mistake. Um, But, uh, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money invested in something. Are we really going to see any kind of a return? Well, it's very interesting. In the beginning of my work, you know, 30 years ago, there weren't many stats on what it was, you know, how much better... Uh, ethical companies were in in quantitative ways than the companies that chose a a path of least resistance or the non-ethical path. But now we've got those numbers. And every year, for instance, Ethisphere um, puts out its uh, 100 best or most ethical companies in the world list and the 100 bottom on that list. And they compare the results in those companies. Um, And it's measured a number of ways by competitors, by the internally, by employees, et cetera, and management um, and by stockholders. So they've got a number of ways that we're looking at this as, you know, what what do we mean by most ethical companies? You put all those things together and it turns out that the ethical companies uh, in the last five years, so the 2022 results, which I just saw about a week ago, um, uh, basically show that ethical companies in the top 100 outperform the bottom 100 by 25%. Mm. 25%! Their productivity is up something like 22% their turnover is down something like 46%. So people are staying longer at these places. Um, Their quality is up about 15 or 20%. So you can recognize in the companies that are not making simple uh, short-term decisions to try and gain right now, that there's actually a real long haul that, that gets them to a much better point than they would have been if they stuck with the companies that aren't making choices like that. Hard to see at the time But if you know the results are there and you can look at those results and you can talk to the folks that are in those companies, and I have, there's a completely different attitude from the bottom, I mean, from the top down, right? The largest shadows cast from the top, from the top down that infects, I use that word as a good thing, not a bad thing, that's infectious for the employees that are down below because they recognize that this is a good place to be. There's honesty, there's integrity. The difference being honesty is saying something true and integrity is, is living what that truth is. Right. So there's honesty, integrity out there. um, And that that's a completely different space to be than some of these other companies that go downhill, even if they've been around a long time, Then they're just taking longer to go downhill. And
1: there are so many different dimensions of that. We could tease out. We're going to I think, leave that for our listeners, but I'm just as, as we're thinking about all of this, just in the human relationships if i'm not wasting energy having to worry about as a leader whether i trust my team or as a team member whether i trust my leader or i trust the the senior leaders or the decisions that were made if i trust that everyone is working within an ethical framework and towards the stated objectives like there's so much energy that isn't wasted that can be spent on much more useful things (laughs) like you know Working together, solving problems. Selling you know, products. Selling product, <laughs> figuring out what we're doing, enjoying our work and life and, and everything else. So just, I mean, there's so many benefits, but just to set that state. Well, thank you for, for taking us down that detour because I know it's a question that, that comes up for folks as they're listening. So, um, so walk us through, uh, we talked about uh, tier one, the, the rung one on our ladder or step stool is that self-interest and is, is it right for me? What are the next levels?
0: Good question, and I think important to know those next levels because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to walk up this moral ladder to make the highest level ethical choices. Um, so, at uh, rung one of this step ladder, the first step was it's about me. At rung two, the next step up, um, the real uh, way to phrase this is I phrase it this way: it's about some of us. Uh, the people that we're affiliated with, the organization that we're in, our community, our Boy Scout troop, the church that we're in, uh, even our nation is just part of a much larger piece of the puzzle. And you could say that we've made choices at the national level um, that were about some of us, not about the rest of us in the globe, right? Um, And so we're kind of wrestling with those all the time, whether it's at the local level, it's me individually, or it's at the national level, um, as we struggle with things like globalization. But The idea here is that I'm beginning to take into account more others than just myself when I'm making an ethical choice, which is a good thing. I'm beginning to think about a larger circle of people. Granted, it's the people I want to be a part of and affiliated with, but I'm beginning to think of a larger set of people that might be affected by the choice that I'm making or that we're making. Um, And that can be helpful in, in, in thinking about a larger section of the folks that are going to somehow get a negative result or a positive one of the choices I'm making. So it's about some of us. It's great. And that's, by the way, where our laws are. Laws are not at the highest level of the moral ladder because we all know that laws change. And quite frankly, a lot of organizations make their decisions on the basis that the law says they can do it. But you know, law tells us what we can do. It's ethics that tell us what we should do. And we know that laws change over time. I mean, you think about this.
1: Or you could, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh no, I was I was commenting on what you were saying. There is that, and if anything, laws tend to there tends to be a lag from as our consciousness evolves and and we become more aware of of a more eth- as we move towards a more eth- moral and more ethical. The laws change, but they they lag behind whatever that forward edge, the the noble edge. If we, if, <laughs> that's
0: right. Good term. Um, yeah. And, and then in fact, that's very true. So we could look 40 years ago at uh, uh, 40, 50 years ago at segregation laws in some of the states and recognize that while there were laws and they allowed you to go ahead and treat others differently, but not with equity or justice compared to yourself, um, that, that these weren't the right laws to have. So it wasn't laws that changed our thinking about equity and justice for everyone. It was really us that began to think that way. You can think of the civil rights movement, for instance, which got larger and larger and included more and more diversity in it um, that really changed the law, right? The civil rights law was actually after the fact. Um, We can think of smoking laws this way, right? They don't don't make a a smoking law and then say, okay, now everybody's gonna do this because of the law. It really begins to change um, in the way that we do things and the way that we wanna see the after effects of whatever that habit like smoking would be. And then the laws begin to recognize that our sense of the morality of this case has changed. And so I think you're absolutely right. As we change uh, morally in a society, we're always advancing towards this noble edge. We've got the innate capacity to wanna create a better civilization tomorrow than we've got today. And I know that's very philosophical. So let me pause here, parenthetic for a moment, say, you know. Uh, if if, you, if I ask you the question, do you want the world for your children to be the same as, worse than, or better than the world you've got, I have to say 99% of the people I ask this question to say, what? Yeah, I want the world to be better for my children than it is for me. And there you go. That's that innate capacity to want to bring something to civilization that makes it better in the future than it is today. And that's there inside of us, and you can tap it in most of us if there are certain parts and elements that we do that are about the future of the kids. So that actually is now leading us up to the third step, which is we've gone from it's about me to it's about some of us to it's about all of us. So that's the third step where we're thinking about all, meaning anyone who's going to be affected now or in the future by the choice that I'm making or as an organization, the choice that we're making. Those are the people that we have to consider in the choices that we're making. And we finally enlarge the circle to include all the stakeholders, those that might be affected most immediately and with high impact and those in the future that may you know, see what we're doing or see what we did and recognize that it was a, you know, it was a good thing um, that they did that back then because it's created this. Environmental laws and the climate change conversation today is really about future stakeholders. Face it, all the laws passed about trees aren't for us I've got all the computer and toilet paper that I need for the rest of my life if we went out trying to knock all the trees down. So you recognize those laws really about, not about us as the stakeholders. They're really about the folks that aren't even here yet. that will inherit what it is that, you know, what they're going to get from us. There's a great Native American saying, I don't mean to diatribe here, but there's a great Native American saying that says, you know, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Mm. So how are we gonna borrow it and return something back to them in the future, right? So that's that third level. It's about all of us. And sometimes in thinking about this in business, we've got to include some of those stakeholders in the conversation uh, about whether we move the plant or whether we shut down a product line or whether we, you know, who who are the people that are gonna be affected by what we're doing? They need to be able to represent themselves and at least give us some indication of the level that they're being affected by what it is that we do.
1: So and and let's dive into that just a little bit deeper so the the thinking about all of us taking all of us into consideration. So I'm a I'm a manager a manager in a, in a business and I'm I'm considering some different types of of decisions and there are different values engaged i've got uh, the, the truth that this is going to be good for the, the business here maybe the customer here maybe my team here uh, and i'm weighing that against other consequences and when you're talking about ethics you you know there's a there's a truth out there there's a there's there's an a and a b and you said it's not like you can be a little bit pregnant right it's i i i either ate some pizza or i didn't eat some pizza right there's not this in between How do we start applying this framework when we're in the middle of those decision-making moments?
0: Yeah, and and it has to be something that becomes ingrained in the way that we think about making those choices. So I don't think anybody, I certainly did, not I'll speak for myself, wakes up overnight and says, oh, I got to choose in a different way. And this is what I have to think about. Part of the week that we do in our consulting business, which is Noble Edge Consulting, um, is to try and uh, teach companies or educate and build processes and systems, where it becomes an innate part of the process of making a choice where you include different tools in the beginning of that choice all the way through the end, which might include having conversations with more stakeholders than we've done in the past to try and get us to a place where we're, we're, we're looking at where we are on those three steps it's just about me here, I'm going to make this decision because it's a promotion for me or I'm going to get a big bonus this year. That's a sort of it's about me, you know, decision. Um, to It's about some of us, look, the organization's really going to prosper. The state stockholders are going to get a good 15% return and our value is going to go up and the CEO will stay in his position. Well, that's about us. Well, what about all the people in the community that were going to be affected by the plant closure or uh, the product that you were getting rid of or the new product you're introducing that has uh, less expensive got chemistry in it, you know, whatever it is, it's a, it's a hard choice. And by the way, there are some times when you've got to make that hard choice because you recognize that we're not going to be around anymore unless we, unless we do this for ourselves. Um, so the idea now is to minimize the negative impacts and maximize the positive impacts of whatever the choice is that we're going to make. And that may mean we've got to make an investment in something in the process of doing this. Um, And maybe part of that's a safety net for the employees, maybe part of that's, um, you know, somehow uh, uh, dollars to the community that we're gonna be forsaking as we move someplace else. Um, But it also means that we're looking at the, why are we moving someplace else? If we know that these are gonna be the impacts, What, what are the positive impacts and the negative impacts of what we do? And I think that's really a very broad definition of social responsibility, maximizing your positive impacts and minimizing your negative impacts, because we all know, The choices that we make are sometimes going to have negative impacts on, on others. It isn't like the top rung of the ladder is everybody always feels great about what it is that we're doing. It's more like everybody understands why it is that we did it and at least their voice was included in the why that we did it and we gave them a chance to understand why we're making that decision. And I'll step back to that example I used about the traffic ticket, right, when the cop is standing there. Imagine if we actually had, and I'm not saying we're going to do this, but we had a conversation about, you know, I know exactly how fast I was going, but I needed to do this and this and this. I'll take the ticket if that's what it is, but I'd love you to escort me, you know, down the next stretch of road to get whatever it is I have to get done. Um, or, yeah, I was speeding and I recognize that's a bad thing to do. I hate the speed limit here, so I'm going to work on that. Um, but I know you got a job to do, so give me the ticket and, you know, off I'm going to go. Um, those don't necessarily feel so good, some of them, but they're the right thing to do. And wouldn't we want people to be talking to us in this regard? I I think the officers really face so much difficulty in all of their professional life with the kind of people they run into that will do anything um, not to tell the truth, right? yeah. to be dishonest or yeah. non-integrity. So anyway, that's well,
1: And even if you're not talking about uh, having to have that enforcer of the, the law or ethics or, or what have you um you know you use a classic example of uh stop signs or a four-way stop and turn and you you already mentioned guardrails but that ultimately these are the choices about the world we're creating and how much freedom we all have in that world versus how much stress and anxiety we have in that world so uh you know and this happened to me just uh two days ago i was driving um